hesitation. Polish and the squalor, harbor resting, making festive nesting, in between the waves caressing of possessive grave infesting, active action proton turning with a burning fervent feeling, growing sky, go forth abide, along a blowtorch thigh inside, a scorching flyer in the blaring sound completion, mound retrieval fairy ovum, life deletion in cohesion, holding rest of festing evil. Welcome to Infinite Conversations, a podcast about art and life. My name is Marco V. Morelli. And my guest in this episode is the poet, author, publisher, editor, astrologer, and artist, Jen Zart. We're talking about her series of poems recently published in Metapsychosis Journal in two parts. The first five poems are collected under the title, Dialogues with the Inscrutable. And the last one is on its own. That one's called, There is a Hydrogen Bomb on Your Raspberry Eyelid. I definitely recommend taking a look at these poems before or after listening to this talk, just to get a first-person feel for what we're discussing. Jen's poetry is really unusual. It was a puzzle to me, and still is. It has a weird effect. It was almost spooky how, once I interfaced with the language, the words began interacting with various fragments of thoughts and strands of ideas that I already had floating in the soup of my mind. And then how the pieces combined in a kind of non-linear grammar, which is inherently hard to explain. Nonetheless, I perceived an organic pattern or dynamic that produced a unique experience. Jen's poetry is complex, yet playful, abstract, yet sensuous. But you'll have to experience it for yourself. You can find the poems at metapsychosis.com. And you can learn about everything else Jen is up to at jenzart.com. Two N's, Z-A-H-R-T. And of course, if you enjoy this talk, there's more at infiniteconversations.fm. And our discussion forum is open at infiniteconversations.com. Okay. It was really fun talking to Jen. I hope we're not too inscrutable. Or maybe I hope we are. In any case, please enjoy the dialogue. That one is uh, is very sonorously rich, and it, it plays with sounds. They all play with sounds, and I have been reading them aloud to myself, trying to like see where the sounds go and feel the ways that they interconnect with each other. And so I don't know if they work as kind of slam poetry, you know, but I find that there's a lot of sonic richness in the language and that that's part of what you're playing with as a poet is the interconnections between the sounds and the the ways that they reference each other and kind of evoke each other. Yeah. It's using sound to break meaning. Yeah. And break meaning open too. Uh, Because like one of the interesting things that I think happens with these poems is that they give you an image or they give you some fragment of a perception or of an idea, but then that thing actually like splays out into four or five different potential directions. And some of those are dead ends, some of those are decoys, but then others of those connect with some other fragment somewhere else and then begin to form this like network of 
meaning between them. But then the network is still fragmentary. And you kind of have to find these other connection points elsewhere. And it doesn't, at least for me in my reading, doesn't coalesce into a discernible whole. Which, right. is, which is why I, when I first encountered the poems, the word inscrutable came to mind because it, they don't present themselves to the mind or my mind as comprehensible or, or as like speaking in a understandable way. Uh, in, in fact, is it okay if I just kind of riff for a moment? Oh, yeah. I've been like just sitting with this, this poetry. I spent like a couple hours last night or more. I spent some time this morning. I spent time before we published the first five of the poems. And then um, I've just been kind of mulling it, them over in my mind and trying to find a way to relate to them and even find a way to talk about them. And it's, a, it's particularly, I'm nervous about this call because I, I feel, I mean, on, the one, on one level, I just feel stupid, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. I just feel like I don't get it. And that's just one reaction, you know, that I have. And, and then on another level, I, I, um, I realize that it's okay and they're not meant to be easy or easily understood but they're not necessarily meant to be difficult for difficulty's sake either. It's, it's, uh, I don't think that you're just doing a kind of intellectual exercise. Like, I don't think it's just a game you're playing with language. I could be wrong about that, or that could be a dimension of what you're doing, but I feel like there's something there. I feel like there, even though the phenomena of the experience of the language is fragmentary and complex, uh, that there is some noumena behind it, as it were, uh, and that that shines through in all of these perceptions or all, all these images, the, everything that the, the poetry does. The, the way that I experience po like the poetry that I write, which I, f I feel is, might be a common experience in, in your own way, is is that I don't know where they come from exactly. I'm also, I don't always know what they mean, but I, I do. Like, because there is that, there's some motive, like that's, there's some intensity of experience, you know, that is translating itself or working itself out into this particular concrescence of language that has to be like just so. It's, it, there's a reason why the words are where they are and, the way that they're spaced and the juxtapositions between them. And, but it doesn't always make sense to me, except I know that it doesn't make sense to my rational mind, but it makes sense at other levels. Like it makes mm -hmm. sense in my body or it makes sense yeah. in, in the, my energy flow. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would just, maybe we could start and I could stop talking and let you talk by asking you what your relationship is to your own poetry like what does it do in the ecosystem of your consciousness going back to the sonic and also you'll see there's a thread of science science terminology images from science thread through here so in my educational background i've always been attracted to science but i've never been interested in the scientific method the way that it's taught so my way of understanding 
things through science fiction, which is a category of reading that I've always enjoyed, is this poetry helped me get into images of science and marry them with my more literary interests, but also break them apart and try to understand them. So when I first learned about how mushrooms grow, especially, you know, since the first poem here is fuselage, like that image of the hyphae really inspired me as a poet. What can you do with that, given that this organism grows that way? What does it actually do for language? How can you make your poetry into hyphae? And then going from that, the sonic dimension is a point of unity between these fields where we have this split between art and science and how then you can make art out of science. Because in the lingual realm, even when you're reading on a page, and most of these poems were intended to be read because of the way that they intersect different things get into your eyes, but your mind's ear or that listening organ, when you read out loud to yourself as you're reading, then there's this like way that your optical and aural dance together when you're reading them. And that's also that gap between what we hear, what we see, how we can understand more information through reading something slowly. If I were to read these out loud to you, you'd miss half the show because it doesn't compute. You have to also get it in your eyes through the optic nerve. But at that same time, the sonic dimension is what then chain links different things together. And as I was writing, that's also something that came up was that certain words would evoke other words just because of sound. And then I would try to think, well, then how can that meaning be bridged between those things? And maybe not, but still put it there anyway and let that disjoint sit there only because of the affinity of sound, which is, I think, one reason why there's no hook on or narrative that satisfies you. Mm -hmm. It's a different way of reading, I, I, I think. And all I can say is like how I tried to to relate to, to it and like what even what the enjoyment of it was for me, because there's a certain satisfaction, right, that comes from getting something and like understanding that, like, oh, I get it. It makes sense. Uh, but a lot of times like that satisfaction can come too easily and if it comes too easily, you don't really value it as much. Uh, and it also doesn't have the same quality that it does when you really have to like dig in and be in the unknown, like not know, uh, but feel what the language is doing. To give an example, like if I, you talked about the hyphae and uh, this like rhizomatic way that um, meaning can can be can, can grow. It's not just according to you know logical sequence, and it's not just according to utility. It it, it has a different structure to it. I picked up on that theme of the the hyphae or the rhizomatic or the cellular or the enzymatic, and I was thinking about that in terms of just the structures of the poems and like the ways that the lines lead into each other and that connections between different parts of a poem or even between different poems like happen in this like underground uh, suggestive evocative way 
And I thought like one way of like understanding or just, you know, relating to, to the work is not looking at it as a, as a poem exactly, but like as a, like a protein or some kind of like microscopic, like cellular sort of organic entity, you know, that. Like, like shards of RNA that then can, in their deficiencies, reproduce an alternate negative relief or positive relief of this negative, right? The way that DNA replicates like a zipper, there's sort of openings and closings, and then the RNA comes along and maps that and then makes a different one, you know? It's incredibly complex. Like it takes like supercomputers to to model how how those you know how those proteins and how those DNA and RNA strands even like fold and interface with one another. Yeah. And and also like there's a, a real specificity to the particular strands and like what other like what interactions they will allow. Uh, one of the other themes that comes up in the work is that of keys. It's in this first piece, or wet keys, uh, you call it. And then in another piece, you talk about how these molecules or these enzymes can like, meet each other. Because an enzyme only works on specific types of molecules, right? So, mm-hmm. in a way, it's like a key to interfacing with that particular other, other object. And I wondered about the, the relative like privacy vers- versus openness of of those keys like are there things here that like you just nobody could even would even possibly be able to interface with because it's so like intimate and private to you and 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 is there other stuff that like if you just had like read the right book or watched you know just had the the, similar experience it would make sense hmm I don't think that there's anything more secret than just living life in the sense that if there are private things here, I share those private things with you and everyone else who reads them. And I think they're private because they happened to me or I participated in those memories that are drawn on to create these images, but they're actually things that we all do. Like, if it's about my sex life, which some of these do have components of, you also have a sex life. And so it's actually possible that what I think is a private experience for me is something we, in fact, share. Not together, but you've had your own connections to people and you've had your own intimacies. And so when I'm drawing on my experience of intimacy and then coding it in this language to draw out my poetic perception of what that entailed, you actually could hook into that from your own experience of what intimacy is with another human. And that then my privacy becomes public because it is only private to me in the specificity of that experience that I had, but we all have intimate experiences, hopefully. And so then it's actually not as private. So if I named names or if I said where things happened, yes, sure, then it is sort of becoming almost a memoir, but that's not the intention. It's more trying to break through to that relationship, intimacy with language through intimacy with a human, right? So it's abstracting from my private encounters on certain parts of these poems. You can tell things get quite sexual 
but it's not because of me having sex. It's because of what it means to be a human being who has sex and then what that can do to language mm. if you get into it. And that also hopefully would spill out for others who read this and they realize, wow, every time I have sex, I'm actually making poetry. And it's not even about the other person. It's just about what I experience in that act of intimate openness, physical openness, communion, conjunction with another, the fluids that happen, the things that are spoken, the ways that we even get to be there, you know. I'm staring at the page of your, your first, the first poem in the series, Fuselage. And I have all these scribbles all over it and things written down and lines underlined and stars and uh, all these ways that it, it, it spoke to me in that way that you're talking about where there isn't like a representation of a private scene in your life, but it's connecting with experiences that I've had at a like a micro like a cellular level and by that cellular I don't mean the material sense of the neurons and you know the the actual physical RNA or DNA or whatever I mean that the experience itself or the way that I might articulate it to myself like has this kind of cellular aspect to it where you know you, you string together molecules or you string together cells into you know strands of of meaning and experience and that those strands like hold something they they do something i think in in the like in the psyche uh and in the body too uh partly i want to just get into the language and mm -hmm. but i'm a little bit hesitant as well hesitation um <laughs> I will say you're, you're definitely on to something with that in terms of, as writers, uh, writing is an act of paying attention, and then it's an act of communication. And in the paying attention, what I hear you saying is these poems have articulated cells of experience in the sense that when you're about to take someone's shirt off, 500 things are happening, and I'm picking out two of them. And then the visceralness that comes through in that language is that you, you know what it's like to be doing that or to step on the doormat of someone you're about to encounter and the doormat happens to be wet because they just took a shower, perhaps. And so if you just focus on that one image, that slight image of why is the doormat wet, why are there keys, you know, whatever that is, it evokes something in you because it's saying so much else with it through that one narrow lens almost holographically, but it's allowing you to meet it there in that shard, that cellular description, just paying attention to one small facet, what it feels like to have your skin tense for whatever reason. One of the words that came to me when I was thinking about the poems at a metal level was uh, micro-perceptions. It's, mm, like, it's yes. like a poetry of micro-perceptions where like, something yes. that happens like in the blink of an eye yes acufen you know this guy acufen no he is a musician a musical artist who takes eight seconds or less of very very popular songs so you know it's illegal to replicate replicate more than eight seconds of a song mm -hmm. uh, without asking for permission or royalty rights and so what he's done is take less than eight seconds of songs and built these tapestries 
out of them. Hmm. And so your mind, I mean, the, the sonic intelligence of the human mind is quite vast. And so if you have any knowledge of these songs and you're only hearing seven seconds or less of a song blended with seven seconds or less of another song that you know, and it becomes this almost overwhelming tidal wave and it's not noise. It's really cool, but it keeps you on this weird, it, it, it also like jars you because you're only getting seven seconds or less and then, or less. Right. And so then it becomes this tapestry, but you don't get the sense of a melody except that the repetition causes the melody. It's enough to give you an experience, uh, but the experience is, is so like minute that you don't get to really grasp it. Uh, but because there are so many of them, they become like suggestive in this, like a, this cumulative way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you add in the, the sonic interconnections or reflections between them, like which I imagine is in the music but also in the poetry, and it becomes a, an experience beyond just the micro-perception, I think. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. beyond it, but not, uh, not without it. Like, ge- that, that split moment is, is, is generative, like the blink of an eyelid, for example, uh, or the, the way that a lip curls, or the, in one place you, you, you have the image of a, to- a tongue, lapping up liquid and it reminded me of this internet video i saw and i think it was of cats or it may have been dogs drinking water and the way Uh they lap lap it up you don't see everything that's even if you just look with the naked human eye you can't see what's actually happening because it's happening so quickly and then if you use um you know really uh, fast motion uh videography you can break down the frames into these like, you know, micro moments and see everything that's happening and see just how amazing it is, like what is actually happening in that split second that you may not even be paying attention. Yes. But what you said earlier is that writing is an, involves the act of paying attention. And I think that like what happens is that attention that you give changes your relationship to time. And then suddenly you can perceive these micro, these micro moments, these micro perceptions of experience and, and discover that there's a um, significance in them. Or maybe it's just that you can impart a significance in them or both, I don't know, but, but it opens up different possibilities of just ex- experiencing anything. Mm-hmm. Because you're not just, it's not just kind of going by as a blur, you're actually kind of uh, apprehending the like with the flickers of of the passage of time, and in a way you reclaim time. I mean, I might be going just off the deep end here, but I'm just I just want to jump to that last poem. Okay, uh, I, just to touch on it and then come back. Uh, the there is a hydrogen bomb on your raspberry eyelid, and I feel like that speaks just that image. Of, to me, was uh, uh, like mind blowing, you know, to use a cliche, but it encapsulated in, in a few words this whole way that in an instant, like there could be a total explosion. In an instant, not just in an instant of time, but also like in an instant of space, like the, the very like layer that covers your eye with which you 
perceive the world, let in light, allow, you know, the a whole you know, visual and ultimately a synesthetic experience, like in that moment, a thousand things can happen. And it's like almost that, that, that entire piece happens in this, in the space of that blinking of an eye. Yes. It does. There's a flatness and there's a dimensionality at the same time. I would say there's this, no, we keep saying microscopic, but it's true. There's just like the, the compression, but then in that compression, Something has to be dense if it's compressed, right? And so it's then giving space to the thing that's compressed in that moment. Which then makes it have duration, but it's not duration. Why don't we back up for a moment and speak just a little more generally and comprehensively, like, to somebody that's not like looking at the poems and just, you know, like kind of in the thick of the, you know, the consideration of like, you know, or the like engagement with them. Uh, you write poetry, obviously, but you also are a PhD. You're also an astrologer. You've done a lot of academic work, a lot of research. And you spend a lot of time with language, and not all of what you write is um, structured in this enzymatic, you know, micro-perceptive way. Uh, you also do astrological readings, and you've written theses, and uh, you're, um, you're, you teach, you give talks. Uh, I know you have a, a, um, a, an online like, webinar that coming up about uh, Walter ben Benjamin and and ast astrology uh, in Germany at that time, like pre-World pre, pre War II, I think, mm -hmm. early 20th century. I, I want to give you a chance just to talk generally about kind of what your overall, you know, intellectual life is and, and creative life and how all these things like interrelate for you, how the astrology relates with the uh, um, the academics relates with the poetry and these are all different very different modes of language and very different modes of interacting in the world and and being in you know relationship with other um, readers and writers and people how does it all like hang together for you i'm not sure there's one overarching narrative that i could draw in that. I think at the end of my life, it will be called, this was how Jen Zart lived her life. But um, astrology was a calling that came to me at 14 and changed my perception of reality. And so all of my academic work is directed towards helping others understand the vast cultural resource that astrology has been for the development of human culture that has been eradicated from our current educational system because it doesn't follow the narrative of scientism. So what do I mean by that? Let me use more simple language. 300 years ago, the scientific revolution, coupled with revolutions in religion, the Reformation, encouraged people to think that astrology, quote-unquote, didn't work anymore, according to those new paradigms. 
And in the course of the 20th century, because people needed to sell magazines and entertain others, and there were all of these laws against fortune-telling, astrology embedded itself in an entertainment mode that gave credence to this perception that it was not something that worked. However, when you engage with it, in whatever form you engage with it in, it does work. So for my small mind, I'm being told one thing, I'm experiencing something else, and then I'm learning about the political reasons why this one thing has been told to me that it doesn't work, which directly contradicts my lived experience. And then I'm looking at the scene going, what can I do to resolve this disconnect? And because of the way that knowledge is policed in our culture, going through academic channels and achieving a PhD and then having that title of doctor would then give me some kind of legitimacy in when I say, Yes, I've gone to UC Berkeley. I have a PhD in German literature and I study astrology and here's all of the intelligent things I have to say about it. Maybe you'll listen to me now. And I had seen my elders doing this in the 90s when I had chosen to get a PhD. A lot of astrologers at that time who had been professionals for 30 years were going back to get higher degrees so that they also could add that title to their claims for legitimacy. And in the meantime, my, my views on legitimacy have shifted Uh, in terms of what astrology actually is, and it's more than one thing. So people who think they know what astrology is, there's a whole, <laughs> whole discussion to be had there that I'll probably spend the rest of my life talking about. But that forms the bulk of what I do. When I wake up in the morning and when I work and everything that I work on all points to helping others understand the complexities in what astrology is and its cultural heritage, how it's contributed to what we do, how it's contributed to the science that we know, to the religions that we practice. And it infuses everything, and it's highly misunderstood. So that's a lifetime project. And if you look back on everything that I've done up to this point, you can see how most of the decisions I've made have linked to that. However, what you're asking also is to say, how do these poems fit into that trajectory? And also... I've written for the Three Penny Review, I worked at the Three Penny Review, and I've worked on things that have nothing to do with astrology as well. And so I don't think that everything I do has to fit into one narrative or sort of one trajectory, even though most of what I do does fit. I would say that around the time I was interested in getting into astrology, and as my worldview was shifting, I've always had this other talent for language. I learn languages very easily. I learned Portuguese in about 10 weeks. Um, I'm not fluent in it, but its its structure is mapped into my brain pretty heavily, and I did that at the age of 28. So German was easy. Everybody says German's hard to learn. I picked it up quite easily. I'm sort of a sponge for that, but that comes from this micro-attention to sounds and, and pattern, and so For me, there's also this other element of it. People who do astrology are looking at patterns, and they're looking at patterns in the sky and how they relate to other patterns in the sky, and then mapping those onto lived experience and having conversations with people about how those maps play out. On another level, you don't need astrology to be able to do that. You can look at patterns and sound and map them into lived experience and play with them and explore them. Because... All of us have imaginations, and we're all incarnated here. And in my view, our time on Earth is to play and see what we can come up with. 
And there's no real rules. We can do what we want. We make rules and we make limitations for ourselves, but if we step back from that and think, you know, the construct of Jen's art is actually just that. I could change my name and move to another country and Jen's art would cease to exist as such. It's just I agree to play along with this role that's constructed for me. And so then I'm seeing, okay, well, what are the limits here? What can I do? Is there an experimental sort of method? Like, is there a method to the madness in, in, in how you even begin to write a poem? Walking. Literally walking outside? Yep. And uh, do you go for a walk feeling like a poem is coming or like there's some words or image that you want to mull on or is it just kind of come to you i let it's a mix i would say i mean there are persistent images so structures of microscopic structures almost like a ernst heckel thing always is existing in my mind so ernst heckel was an artist who drew all forms of life back in the turn of the 20th century. And so those kinds of things are constantly inspiring to me because there is no narrative entrance into a protozoa. You know, we don't actually know why these plankton look like that. They look like sacred geometry, but how can they're alive? You know, what is going on with that? You know, so to give them language then is becoming this whole other engagement with reality because it's not human. It's, there's a, something in what I'm trying to articulate that goes beyond anthropomorphizing. Because as storytellers, we always try to create some kind of human relation to a story because we're trying to explain ourselves to ourselves, no matter what we're writing. And I'm trying to explain something else, that weird, non-accessible thing that we see when we look closely. Hmm. When you first submitted the poems, I think you sent them to Jeremy and you put them in, in the Google Drive. And I, I saw them, and, and uh, I took a quick look. I was busy, you know, I had other things on my mind. And, and my first reaction was I was a little concerned because I've read a lot of poetry that is uh, hard to understand. You know, it's nonlinear. Uh, it's non-narrative, and and it, when I really kind of get into it and like looked at it and like, try to find like just try to relate to it, it seems like it actually there isn't actually something there. It's just words that maybe were interest. I don't know what did it like occurred to the to the poet in some fragmentary state of consciousness, but that there hasn't been. I don't feel or sense that there's a, a real care in how they're put together. Uh, there's a kind of randomness. And yeah, I know that that could be like one method. That's like one way of writing is just opening up to like random associations and impressions and, and putting them out and kind of letting yourself be a, a conduit for that. And then just seeing what happens because it's part of like, like you're saying, like the play of it. Uh, and it's part of, like, the experimental, I think, just nature of, like, there's so many different ways to write. We don't have to, like, think out a, you know, logical sequence of, of ideas and then put them together in a, you know, orderly way. Um, but I was concerned just because I feel like poetry as a medium 
like lends itself to um, bad poetry, if that makes sense. That there's a there's a lot out there that actually doesn't have a lot of thought in it and doesn't have like a doesn't have like those real intensities of of micro perception, but almost could be written by a computer. Uh, yeah. And and then uh, we were deciding what to publish one week and and. You know, Jer- Jeremy suggested, "Hey, why don't we go with Jen's poems?" And I was like, "Oh, I don't, you know, we ha- I'm really like, I don't even get, I have not even engaged with them. I don't understand them yet." And I, <laughs> I didn't mean that to be. I didn't mean that in the sense that I should be able to understand. Like, I, I wasn't going there. Like, I I know that some things are not meant to be understood linearly or rationally and so forth. But I still felt that it's important that there's something there to engage with, and that there's some like experience that you have, and you don't just kind of like. I don't know, just read, skim it once and say, okay, that was cool. Like that was different. That was weird. You actually like go into it uh, and then, and then see what happens. And so Jeremy kind of, he, he came back. He's like, yeah, but you know, I've spent some time with them. When I read them, I don't know, something happens. So I was like, okay, let me go back to it. You know, let me like take it seriously. Let me just block out the time, you know, turn off the computer, print the stuff out, get a pen, sit down and and just be with it and and then that's when i began kind of getting what he meant uh and also realizing oh fuck this is really good like um <laughs> i just and I, I you know i'm nervous to talk i'm a little bit nervous like in the context of this conversation because like again going back to this theme of the inscrutable and this theme of like the nonlinear. uh it's it's hard to talk about. I mean, if you could say it in a linear way, you would, I think. But that's not what it is. It's this nonlinear thing. It's this organismic thing. It's this like protozoa of language that doesn't have a beginning, entry point, and an end. I mean, it's laid out in the page in a certain way, and you may read through it in a certain sequence, and that sequence, you know, matters. But it's uh, it's it's just hard to talk about. But I found a lot of pleasure, actually, in like when I when in in engaging in really engaging with it. Even though that pleasure, most of which most of it, came from the resistance of the language to making it creating an an obvious meaning. <laughs> what happened? What happened? What happens when you um, when Jeremy said? something happens to you and you printed them out and you had your pen, what happened to you? Um, well, I started going through them, right? And I, it's all, you know, it was like, it's like walking in a forest, dark forest blindfolded. And, you know, you bump into a tree and you kind of, or something that feels like a tree and you touch it and it's rough, bark, and then there's something squirmy under your foot and some kind of, you know, breeze and some, all these different phenomena that, uh, that don't actually, you don't actually know you're in a forest. I mean, you, you know, you're in a poem, you know, you're in language, but you don't really know what it is. Uh, and so I mean, part of, I think the, the work of engaging with the poetry is just going through it. And like staying with it, despite whatever resistance 
you feel to some easy like satisfactual uh, of of meaning and like I try to engage it on all these levels too like the the synesthetic experience that you're you talk about the the way that you have to that there is sound and the sonic is an important dimension to it but you all it also has to enter your eyes and I mean it enters your your body because as you utter words and as you like look and just meditate on something and like allow it to allow a chemical reaction to occur like allow it to act on you or act in you it 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 produces this kind of for for me i i start getting a sense right like i start like i start getting a feel for where i'm at like the landscape i'm in uh and then the and then the kind of everything that's like folded in and encrypted uh begins like speaking to me a little bit more i feel it's important like to go into the language and to take it seriously but i don't mean seriously like in this kind of stuffy way or as if it's like some important exalted thing i mean it's like anything like it's uh, it's a it's like paying it's a matter of paying attention because you because you care but also because that's the way in like that's the that's the way to to um to fi- to find out what it's all about and, and to ultimately to enjoy it and, and so it was like I went through an arc with the poems where I read through the first five and and I felt like I, it was almost like a warm up or something like I was almost being tested like if you can hang with these and you know you could just stay with it even though you don't exactly know what's going on and although you have some senses of what's going on and it's like this fragmentary perception. Uh, then you get some kind of reward at the end is almost what I what it was my experience because then the last <laughs> the last piece was uh, the the longer one so it's a little more little more more expansive and uh, veers a little bit more into a, a kind of prose poetry than this more mm-hmm. condensed you know short lines of of poetry uh, and in some ways it was like the it was the most like kaleidoscopic and and colorful and explosive and the, like for me the most delightful but i wouldn't separate it from the others like I, I think that it was like important for my experience to to really kind of grapple with all all of the poems and then to come to that like opening it was like it like opened up this whole world of color and music and, and joy and strength too i mean that that last piece has something of a birth element to it and something of like a, a being coming coming into like her 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 strength and her voice mm-hmm. um there's so many things i actually just want to highlight like okay let's dig in yeah could we why not? It's it's we we've kept everybody on the line for fifty minutes. Let's give him some goods. All right. Uh, you don't want to read these out loud, but I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to read something yourself as well. I'll read hesitation out loud. Okay. Hesitation. 
polish and the squalor, harbor resting, making festive nesting, in between the waves caressing, a possessive grave infesting, active action proton turning with a burning fervent feeling, growing sky, go forth abide, along a blowtorch thigh inside, a scorching flyer in the blaring sound completion. Mound retrieval fairy ovum, life deletion in cohesion, holding restive festing evil. Resting festing evil. Is there a demonic uh, aspect to your poetry? I wouldn't say overtly, but I do believe that a daimon is always with us when we write anything. But no, I mean, there's no, like, I need to be occulty or esoteric or witchy in this this is apart from those activities. What, what does the evil mean to you in that poem? Life. And la- live, live. Oh. This backwards. Oh, I didn't notice that, yeah. As opposed to when... Bands like Sonic Youth record evil, which is love backwards, putting the evil in revolution, which is love. But it's this life, live, live, evil, backwards, looking, forward, looking, which direction are you looking? And less about in a predetermined, overdetermined narrative evil of something bad. Mm-hmm. It's a more of a directionality, I would say. And, and actually in a flatness, kind of, in that way, you know. Just this play turns into something that can be interpreted in this overcharged way, when in fact it's just play. Hmm. The, this poem looked to me like an egg. <laughs> it's like the shape of an egg on the page. And then, of course, that's suggested in, in the poem, Mound, Retrieval, Fairy, Ovum. And, and then, like, when I kind of got to the end, the holding rest of festing, festive evil, it brought my mind back in a loop to the, to the top or a few lines down, the possessive grave infesting and, you, uh, you know, playing with the resting, rest, Restive as being like you know active and festering, fest festing as a, both like the aspects of infestation, like this being mm. infected, but also festing is like a festive festivities festival. It has this uh, feast festival, aspect. yes, festival. <laughs> and of course, like an infection is feasting on you in some way. It's like feasting on whatever nourishment your you know your body as a host provides, right? Right. And, and so there's like the, the death evil aspect of it, the grave, like because infestations can signal you know, death, uh, also becomes like part of the celebration um, at that level of things. This one came out very fast, and it was mostly the play on language of how the words nest in each other. So you did pick up infesting versus just festing and this idea abide inside sky. There's all these 
relationships between how the words come together. And, it, and I read it quickly because I like reading this one quickly because it's actually one of the few ones that lends itself to vocalization. Hmm. And it's because of that um, cadence. It has a cadence. I mean, you can, the internal rhyme lets it be spoken. Um, and I think to interpret it is a mistake. I think it's not meant to be interpreted. I think it's meant to be heard and just enjoyed as a, link, a sonic emission. Hmm. But it's interesting that you can interpret it. And I'm also realizing I'm, I gave protons human feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, wow, proton has a fervent feeling. Hey. But uh, there's an abortive thing here, right? Life deletion, which is evil, but it's life. Right? So there's this, like, I mean, well, is, is life deletion evil? I don't know. But there's sort of this abortive quality to it. So you're saying an egg, but it's like life deletion. Like, it's sort of, you don't get to. There's graves, you know, there's a nesting, but there's also death. Burning, growing, scorching, blaring, you know, holding, resting. It's life deletion in cohesion. And I thought the cohesion referred back to the mound or the ovum. Or the, even the grave, there's there's like a cohesion to it because everything kind of folds back in on itself. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but then that becomes this uh, location from which you know life flourishes again, and it kind of goes back to the beginning. So you kind of you know read it quickly, but I almost feel like it like just like that proton turning, it kind of spin around and around. And you can sort of read it, read it, read it again, and it mm -hmm. would have this motion, this kind of circular spinning motion to it. And, you know, the proton is the part of the atom that is positive. Electrons orbit the proton-neutron nucleus, right? And electrons are kind of fluid and metallic, and or they are what then becomes metal. They flow freely between different atoms in a metal substance. And so... Electrons are less determined in a way. They're, they're a bit renegade. But a proton is specific to the atom that it's making, and it's positive. Hmm. Whereas a neutron's neutral, right? So, I mean, there is a sort of fundamental... By referencing proton, I would say there's a fundamental optimism. Hmm. What, what's the hesitation aspect of it, you think? I'll ask you to answer that before I do. <laughs> um, well, I mean, part of what happens in this is it starts out in this contained space, like a harbor, resting, making. So the resting is there, a harbor is there, a making is something you kind of do in one place and the nesting I think relates to that uh, but then it like takes off and you get the proton turning and you have the burning fervent feeling the sky the growing sky go forth abide and the blowtorch is you know a very <laughs> violent image it's violent but, but it's also just powerful you know and sexual too with the just by mentioning the thigh or juxtaposing that with the blowtorch, scorching again, and the blaring. So I, I wonder if the hesitation is, 
is like that moment between the like containment of 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 death or of the of of th- that mode where we're making something or resting or harboring something and then what what might explode out of that there's some it happens very quickly here but there there's some transition that has to happen and i find in my i find that i always hesitate <laughs> like i have a lot i'll hesitate because i know that that's like an intense experience you know to and you kind of have to gird yourself for it go back to thinking about when you were pregnant with your children and there's this holding of breath because you don't know what's going to happen and it's exciting but it's also really scary because once they're born they're going to go on and do things that you've never even conceived of doing. And so there's almost a hesitation, like, do we get pregnant? Or do we stay with our secure, controllable reality as a couple? Or sometimes you end up getting pregnant, and that creation now is out of your control, and it's happening, and you're in it. And there's still this sense of, like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm not prepared. Or I'm not sure I'm, I can commit to actually making something that will live beyond me. And that's the extreme case. I think it happens also with artistic production. You know, you create a poem and now suddenly other people can read into it what they'd like and it will generate other poems. That poem itself will be generative. You talked about Rubido Press as a kind of child that you were pregnant with. And uh, I'm just remembering that now. uh, Yeah. because, like, you know, I'm a man, obviously, I've never physically experienced in this body uh, literal pregnancy. But I, was a, I really could relate to you um, talking about your, your, your project as a kind of child that needs your attention, like that needs your care, like that won't exist. It kind of comes through you. It's not of you. And in a certain way, like just like a fetus does, it sort of uses your body as a host to grow itself. And then it's going to go and become, you know, it's going to come out of you and become something of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like that, uh, I'm starting to get more of what you, the hesitation, you know, what you mean by that, because it's, it's really unpredictable. And it could be you know, it could be dangerous too. I mean, who knows like what you're going to yeah. unleash onto the world. Right. Uh, or what people will do with it. Uh, Maybe that goes back to this rest of festing evil. Like you think you're creating life, but it's actually something that's got its own power that could be used for things that are not in line with your intention for making it to begin with. Hmm. That directly contradict your intention for making in a negative way, you think, wow, this is the product of my own hands and it's suddenly doing something I don't want it to do, but it's not up to you anymore. Mm. Yeah, the um, Derrida, I, I haven't read this text specifically. I think it was a podcast about a couple of professors talking about his ideas on what he called hospitality and how this is a bit of oblique relationship here, but uh how like there's a there's a sense of radical hospitality like when you open yourself up to experience uh and you know that may allow 
friends, guests, you know, good things into your life. Uh, but it also may allow what he calls visitations. And those are things that you weren't expecting. And that, you know, come because you have to be open just even to, you know, to have, to have any kind of meaningful experience. Uh, but that openness, which can be positive, that it could, it could be the, you know, this positive proton spin and the, 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 the festiveness, uh, and the making and the creating, uh, also invites in the infestation potentially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or the evil mm -hmm. or the visitation. Mm -hmm. So it's like that moment of, of, of creation. It's a, I think it's a really, it's a precarious moment. You know, like I'm feeling that really strongly now because I'm, you know, with the podcast and the journal and stuff we're putting out and like the way that I'm trying, you know, we're trying to reach out to people and like engage people in, in a process, uh, but I, I can't control where that process is going to go. You know, I can't control if it's going to just collapse and blow up and be something like gruesome. Or I, I don't think that that's not the intention. Like the intention is for it to be beautiful. Uh, right. But the only way that I even can have a chance of creating beauty is if I open myself up to to. Uh, death and decay and the unexpected. Yeah, I think that sense that you just expressed is one reason why I felt at home sending these to you because there is a match between this part of my writerly life and what you and your team at Metapsychosis is putting together. These are not poems for every journal. This is a specific kind of writing that has found a home inside of your project. So, in a, you know, like I actively chose to. It's infested, our project. Submit them to you. Um, <laughs> because there is a kind of way that there's a, you know, it, it doesn't fit our common narratives of what it means to write or be conscious. And, and that's okay. There will be places for them. I knew that when I was writing them, that it's okay that they don't have a home yet and that they're just with me incubating. Um, doesn't mean that they shouldn't be written or that they shouldn't be held on to until they do find that place. So I was very excited as you guys announced your project that it was time for them to come out. Infinite Conversations is a project of A Theory of Everybody, a platform for social poetics and planetary thought. In addition to this podcast and podcast network, we're also working on a number of other projects, including an online journal of consciousness and culture called Metapsychosis, an unusually hardcore book club called Lit Geeks, and a discussion hub tying these all together at infiniteconversations.com, where you can join the conversation. We offer all this freely in the spirit of the gift, and you can learn more and support our work at theoryofeverybody.com. Once again, this is Marco Vimarelli. Thanks for listening.